0: Hey, it's Jeremy Myers, and you're listening to the Redeeming God Podcast. So in today's podcast episode, we're going to look at three things like we usually do in these podcasts. We're going to talk a little bit about current events, today's will be politics, and what we can expect from a Biden-Harris administration. Second, we're going to go into the mailbag, and I'm going to respond to, I think, three emails today. But uh, they're all on the same theme, which is the theme of the unpardonable sin. I know I dealt with this a little bit a few weeks ago, but I'm going to deal with it again because I get so many emails on this, then I probably won't address it again for some time. And then thirdly and finally, which will sort of be the main section of today's podcast episode, we will be looking at the parable of the wheat and the tares from Matthew chapter 13, verses 24 to 30. So that's where we're headed today. Let's begin then with some predictions about the Biden-Harris administration here in the United States. They were uh, sworn into office on Wednesday, yesterday. So um, what I want to do is basically talk a little bit about what happened during the Trump administration and how people responded to him, and, and um, really at the beginning of his administration four years ago. So uh, during the beginning of the, the Trump administration four years ago, you may recall, there were lots of predictions made about him and how disastrous his presidency would be, and none of those predictions came true. So I'm going to be making a, li- a few predictions of my own about the Biden-Harris administration, and uh, And then I will uh, take a look at them again in about three and a half years or so during the next presidential election to see how many of them came true. Who knows? Maybe I'm a prophet. <laughs> uh, but what I find interesting is whenever I try to talk about some of these successes we hear, uh, the successes that occurred under President Trump, uh, people usually cannot, uh, you know, explain them away or refute them. Instead, they try to refute them by talking about Trump's angry tweets or, you know, some lewd comment he made 15 years ago about women, or oftentimes I find this one, and this is just laughable, this, oh, but he called neo-Nazis very fine people. If you still think that, by the way, seriously, turn off CNN, MSNBC, CBS, ABC, all of these truly fake news stations who will not tell you the truth. Uh, If you go back and look at the comments Trump did make there at the Charlottesville, uh, about the Charlottesville protest, um, where there were white supremacists there, Uh, Trump did not call them very fine people. In fact, he condemned them totally. You go back and look at the comments he actually made. Don't trust the news. Go and read the transcript of what he said. Uh, Trump totally condemned the white supremacists and the neo-Nazis who were there in the crowd that day. And then he said, apart from them, there were very fine people on both sides of the political aisle, on both sides of, uh, and both groups that were there that day. That's what he said, okay? And so it is completely wrong and false, disingenuous, even deceptive for people in the media to come out and say that Trump called Nazis very fine people. Anyway, this is the sort of thing I'm talking about. Uh, The media loves to lie. Uh, Politicians love to lie. And you need to do your due diligence to research and investigate and look into the things that uh, you are told to see whether or not they true are true. Okay, uh, and, and so um, people in power, especially politicians, often say what they think they want, what the voters want to hear. And then when they get into power, they tend to do the exact opposite. And I'm talking about here in the United States, both Democrats and Republicans. Very, very common for people just to to lie, 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 lie on the campaign trail and people vote for them and then they get into office and they do the exact opposite of what they said. And so when it comes to politicians, when it comes to people in general, what I want you to start doing is stop listening to what people say or what it is reported that they said, as in the case of Trump, and instead look at what is actually done. Okay. Let the facts speak for themselves. When it comes to Trump, take just two areas. Okay. Trump was, and this is an indisputable fact. Trump was the most pro-life and pro-peace president we have had in modern American history. Okay. He's the only president in modern history to not start a war. That's a fact. And so as a follower of Jesus who wants to see peace spread upon the world, I can praise Trump for that. In fact, not only did he not start a war, he helped bring peace into the Middle East, uh, reduce tensions there. He helped reduce tensions with North Korea. He brought our troops back from Iraq, Iran, Afghanistan. Okay, uh, and so we can praise him for that because he is a peaceful president. That's what he wanted. He wanted to see peace brought to the, middle, uh, to the world and to our country. And so he should receive praise for that. Also, he's the most pro-life president. He did more to help protect the lives of innocent unborn children than any other president in American history as well. And so he should receive praise for that. And by the way, since Jesus is pro-life and pro-peace, I'm going to say something that might be shocking to some people here. Uh, These actions of Trump were Christ-like actions, and he should be praised for that. And by the way, I would happily praise any Democrat president who uh, acted in the ways of Jesus as well. I would call them Christ-like directions. Okay, so uh, Christ-like actions that those Democrats would do. But we'll see about Biden. And so I want to make some predictions about Biden. Now, you may recall four years ago when Trump came into office, some people made some outlandish predictions about Trump and uh, some doom and gloom predictions. They predicted he was going to start another world war. Didn't happen, not even close. He got us out of wars, brought our troops home. Uh, Some people predicted that he would, um, that the stock market would crash, right? That didn't happen. We had record stock market increases. I'm not a stock guy myself. Um, I I don't have any retirement, but it matters to some people and it is an indicator of, of of what's going on in the economy. Some people said there will be more homelessness and more people out of work and our economy would crash. None of that happened. In fact, all the reverse happened. I even know some people who said that Trump was anti-gay and so he was going to round up gays and lesbians and and put them in re-education camps. (laughs) The most ridiculous thing ever to say that sort of thing. Uh, And yet there's some people saying that Biden will do that to Trump voters. So we'll see. Uh, I'm not making that prediction, but some people are. So, uh, and on and on and on. The point is, four years ago, lots of people were making predictions about Trump, not a single one of which came true. In fact, all the exact opposite. So uh, here now at the beginning of the Biden-Harris administration, I am going to make some predictions about what we will see over the next couple of years. And then, uh, you know, three and a half years from now, I'm gonna revisit this list and see how well I did on my predictions, okay? So let's talk about this. Uh, first, I don't think Biden is is even going to make it through this year, 2020, okay? Um, if you have watched him speak and uh, know anything about cognitive decline, he is showing all the signs of serious cognitive decline. So I think that he's not going to be forced out. People are saying they're going to use the 25th Amendment on him. That's not going to happen. Uh, he's going to resign for medical reasons, and that will allow Harris to step in, okay? So I think that's going to happen probably within the next six months, before the end of 2020 for sure. Okay, uh, let's see. When Trump became president, he left in office many Obama-era appointees, which I think was a mistake because every president before him has been allowed to remove the previous president's appointees from office and get his own in there so that they can all be a unified team. But uh, the media blasted Trump for... Desire to do this, and so he left a lot of them in office, which was a mistake because they did indeed seek to undermine him and even betray him every chance they got. Uh, Biden will not make that mistake, he will do, and the media will praise him this time around. He will uh, remove from office many of the Trump appointees. Um, In fact, I wrote this list a few days ago before Trump or before Biden was uh, put into office. And as of today, January 21st, 21st, we see that Biden's first firing was Jerome Adams. I mean, Jerome resigned, but that's because he was told, you need to resign. And that's really what's going on here. He's not going to fire anybody. Biden won't, but he will tell them, you need to resign or else. And of course, they usually will resign. Uh, Jerome Adams was the Surgeon General of the United States, appointed by Trump, and uh, Biden has forced him out. So it's already begun, and, and of course, the media is praising him for it but they didn't praise Trump. A little hypocrisy there. However, uh, let's move on. Number three, under Biden and Harris, uh, it appears that all of the economic gains achieved by Trump will basically disappear and even be reversed. Uh, I I predict that there will be widespread economic downturn. And we'll begin to see a lot of that this very year. Uh, Biden has already promised that he's going to raise taxes on everyone. So... Yay, everybody's paycheck is going to be less. Uh, as a result, there will be higher poverty and homeless rates. Um, there will be a higher unemployment rates. This will be across the board, but it's going to especially hit lower income communities, such as those found in Black, Hispanic communities. We'll see lower uh, or higher unemployment rates for women as well. And a lot of this, of course, is going to be due to the fact of a massive influx of, of immigrants which Biden is welcoming with with wide open arms as well. Again, I'm not against immigration, neither was Trump, uh, but we want uh, legal immigration and we want high-skilled immigration. We don't need people to come into this country who are not going to work and who are just going to sit at home and collect a welfare check. That, that is not helpful for this country, for the world, or even for those people who, who do that. Uh, there's lots of ways to help the poor and needy in this world, and we need to do that but welcoming, welcoming them here so that uh, unemployment increases and poverty increases, that, that's not the best way to do that. Anyway, again, I wrote this list uh, a few days ago and already today, 1 21 21, some of this is already coming true. Biden has signed an executive order uh, to uh, end the Keystone Pipeline project. And that one step right there by itself put an end to tens of thousands of jobs not only here in the United States but also in Canada okay and also Biden has said he's going to end all fracking in the United States uh, again t- tens of thousands of jobs and by the way it's interesting Biden promised during his campaign that he would not do that he said that was false people said you're going to end fracking no i promise i will not well now he we, he's saying he will so again, a promise made during the campaign because he knew it was unpopular. Now he says he's going to do it because he's in power. Um, and all of that, of course, is going to lead to higher gas prices at the pump. Oil prices, even electricity prices will go up. And uh, because the us we're not we're no longer going to be energy independent. And so that leads to, again, more money out of our pockets to pay for basic utilities and to fill our car. I've even heard there's going to be a $1 raise on, on uh, per gallon on gasoline in taxes. So more taxes, but we'll see when that when that develops. Uh, all of this of course is gonna lead to lower stock market because uh, companies now have to pay more for, you know, use more of their profits on uh, gas and electricity. So on. So, lower stock market will be the result of that, which means less retirement accounts, fewer retirements, um, and so on. Okay. And then there's this $15 minimum wage hike. It's going to be a disaster. Okay. I promise you that. Uh, sure. If, if you're making $7.50, $15 an hour sounds great. I don't deny that. Uh, but guess what happens? These companies don't take the hit. Okay, if you're if you're McDonald's and you're paying your company seven dollars and fifty your employees seven dollars and fifty cents an hour, now all of a sudden you have to pay them fifteen. All right, and I agree seven fifty is not a livable wage. But here's what happens. Do you think that McDonald's, that local store or the chain itself or the company is going to say, well, I guess less profit for us? Of course not. What are they gonna do? They are going to raise the prices across the board for all of their hamburgers and french fries and soft drinks. Which means what? You and I pay for that. Anytime you go to a store where the minimum wage has been raised, the company itself is not taking that hit. They pass that on to the consumer. And so now things that were a dollar will now spent cost $2. Say goodbye to your dollar store menu from, from McDonald's or Wendy's or wherever. All right? And also, uh, the other thing stores can do is lay people off. Okay, well, we used to pay our employers, employees $7.50 or $8 whatever. Now we have to pay them, pay them $15. Guess what? Half of the company is now laid off, unemployed. The uh, Congressional Budget Office just came out and said that, yes, raising the $15 minimum wage is going to help about a million people uh, earn more of a livable wage. But they went on to say that over a million people will also lose their jobs. So some people are gonna go from $7.50 to 15, fantastic. Others are gonna go from $7.50 to zero because they will get laid off also. So, so that that's, increases the unemployment rate again. And of course, along with all of this, we're still talking about the economy. We're going to see higher prescription drug prices, higher healthcare costs. Trump was working to reduce both of these so that we could get drugs uh, faster and more quickly and cheaper, just like they have them in Canada and other places. But uh, the Democrats and under Biden will try to increase bureaucracy, decrease competition in the market, and all of that leads to higher healthcare costs, higher drug prices, and again, more strain on you and your income. Um, all, of that, all of this leads to lower household income for the middle class because it's getting taken from us every which way uh, they can. So uh, that's the economy. Some of my predictions about the economy. Under Biden, number four, under Biden and Harris, we're going to see greater social problems in the United States and around the world. Uh, Look, if we are not energy independent, then that means we are sending our money to places that produce oil, like where? Russia, Iraq, Iran, Afghanistan, Saudi Arabia. These places produce oil, and if we buy it from them, then we are funding these terrorist regimes in some of these countries and that gives them money to carry out the bad things that they do in their own countries and around the world and even here in the United States. This is going to lead to a loss of peace, destabilization in the Middle East, uh, especially with Israel. We are basically, Israel is, um, the United States has, has historically been one of the few countries in the world that wants to defend and protect Israel. But uh, that is not going to happen as much under a Biden-Harris administration. Uh, not just in the Middle East, though, tensions are going to rise with North Korea and Iran, Iraq, Afghanistan. And some of these countries will, con- will seek to develop their nuclear weapon capabilities. We're already seeing that with Iran uh, and Afghanistan and others. Um, and-, and of course... Uh, a nuclear terrorist regime in the Middle East or in North Korea is not something that is going to be helpful or beneficial to the world at all. I also think that um, Biden is going to, con- or Harris, going to continue the custom of their predecessors other than Trump and declare war. For some reason, politicians think that war brings us all together. And I guess historically that's true. We all unite around a call for war and to send our troops off. It's getting less and less so that this is this is. This happens uh, in recent decades, but I think Biden and Harris are going to go off in that direction also because war tends to enrich certain people and those people want war. And so Biden and Harris will will give them war. So that's that's a prediction. Uh, Again, continuing with greater social problems, we're going to see less religious freedom in the US and around the world. Um, People will be silenced. There'll be less free speech not just uh, religious free speech, but political as well. And by the way, we're already seeing that as Twitter and Apple and Facebook and Instagram and Google, all of these big tech giants start cracking down on the people who don't like Biden. Uh, They removed, uh, obviously, Trump from Twitter and Parler from the Apple store and the Google store and uh, amazon won't let parlor use their servers okay all of this is censorship and it is it is cutting back on our free speech first amendment right to free speech so so that is not good god given right to free speech um social more social problems i think that we are going to see greater violence in our cities you look at some of the, the most violent cities in our country they are typically run by democrats uh, the policies and and politicians in democrat run cities they they have policies that tend to lead to more crime there's lots of reasons for that but but that's that is a general rule of thumb so we'll see that spread even more so under Biden and Harris uh, not just in their cities but nationwide as well this of course leads to greater incarceration rates more uh, people in prison which is not good, and more drugs, therefore more drug overdoses, and more drug crime. The, the Democrats, of course, will see all this, and their first reaction to all such things is, gun control, let's stop guns. But again, you look at the statistics and the actual crime rates in the states and cities across our country. Um, in the United States, where there is more gun control, there is also more gun crime. So... Uh, it's just a, a fact of, of the way gun control works here in the United States. All right. So, uh, we're going to see higher crime rates and higher gun crimes in the United States. We're also going to see again, more social problems, uh, an increase in abortions. Uh, Jesus said, let the ch- little children come unto me and, and do not forbid them. Uh, Jesus is pro-life. But uh, Democrats uh, are, in fact, an executive order, again, from Biden just today, or maybe it was yesterday, to uh, provide federal funding, taxpayer dollars, to fund abortion. Uh, Disgusting, sick, and wrong. Uh, I I, I can't even comprehend how anybody can can support that, taxpayer funding for abortions. Related to all of this, I think we're also going to see um, a decrease in women's rights and women's protections. It's going to be, things are going to go backward for many women. This has happened in a variety of ways. I think that some Democrats and some cities uh, and states might seek to push legalized prostitution. Uh, In fact, we're already seeing some of this as well, just in women's sports. Okay. Um, Biden, again, signed an executive order to allow transgenders to compete in women's sports. So... You know, imagine being a women's volleyball team and competing against a transgender volleyball team, all made up of men, who were previously men, who are now identifying as women. You know how that's going to go. Or imagine racing in the 2016 uh, Rio Olympics. The slowest man at the Rio Olympics was just barely in in the 100 meter dash was just over 10 seconds. Okay, it was like 10.03 seconds or something like that. I can't remember the numbers exactly. Uh, the, the, the woman who won the gold medal at the Rio Olympics was 10 and a half seconds, roughly. Okay, so the slowest man at the Rio Olympics could have beat the fastest woman at the Rio Olympics. And so all these women who hold records, world records at the collegiate level or whatever, uh, all of them are going to be beaten, uh, demolished, and destroyed by transgenders who, men who uh, who are identifying as women. Who now enter into female sports and dominate those sports, uh, destroying r- world records and um, gaining all of the prizes? All these women who have worked their whole their years to become the best that they can in their sport are now going to be defeated and dominated by people who are biologically male. Okay, so uh, again, that's 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 getting backwards for women's rights. It's just in one example. All right. Those are social problems. Let's move on. Got two more predictions. Uh, All of this, of course, number five, the media and the Biden administration, when things start to go bad, they will blame Trump and Trump followers for these problems. Okay. Um, That's just what's going to happen. Remember, that's what Obama did. Obama put into place all sorts of policies and things that destroyed the economy and, and created crime. And he blamed it all on Bush Biden's going to follow that same plan, and so will the media. Number six, and finally, I think maybe one positive thing. Let's just talk about one positive thing that's going to come from the Biden and Harris administration, and it's the end of COVID. <laughs> okay, uh, we're already seeing this as Democrat mayors of Chicago and New York and other places that were all for lockdowns during the during 20, um, 2020 are now saying that we need to open back up before all of their businesses die. Well, Trump... <laughs> was saying that for the whole year the whole last year and uh, but now that the the election is over we are seeing less of an emphasis on you know wearing masks and shutting things down and more starting to see more of an emphasis on opening things back up uh, <clears throat> Biden has has said that uh, for the next hundred days you need to wear masks in all federal property of course that's always been the case which is ironic because what's going to happen is they are going to come out 100 days from now and say Biden, you know, put an end to COVID um, because of this 100-day mask policy and vaccinations, which Trump should get the credit for getting the vaccines, not Biden. But they're going to give the credit to Biden for, for passing, you know, 100 million vaccines in in next 100 days and 100 days of masks. And after that, we will not hear about COVID anymore. Um, and that's a good thing. COVID is bad; it's taking a lot of lives. But uh, all of these factors should point to the truth that the coronavirus scare was mostly about destroying Trump's economy and hurting Trump during the election. Okay, that's mostly what it's about. And I know that coronavirus is deadly on the elderly and those who have breathing problems, but you look at the actual raw numbers, these are facts and statistics taken right from the Center for Disease Control website, CDC, um, the 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 in general overall the coronavirus is no more deadly than the regular flu. In fact, it's a version of influenza. The coronavirus influenza, um, it's it's a version of the flu, and it's no more deadly than the regular flu in general for most people in the population. Okay, so they used this to, and I know it's been tragic, and I, lots of people have died, but um, also the Center for Disease Control. Again, I, I'm just I'm just quoting numbers from the CDC.gov website. About 95% of the people who died from coronavirus had at least one, usually two or more, comorbidities. That is, things they were going to die from anyway. Uh, And, you know, maybe coronavirus sped it up a little bit, or maybe they actually died from the other thing, but it was written down as COVID. All these factors go into play for what happened. Anyway, uh, it it worked, and the Democrats are done with COVID, and so within 100 days it will disappear, and we won't be talking about it. It won't be issues. We won't see death counts all over the place on CNN anymore within three months, some of my predictions. All right, enough about that. I didn't mean to talk that long about all this. Let's see about moving on to the mailbag. You've got mail. Okay, so I have numerous emails every day from various people around the world about the unforgivable sin. Uh, Here's three. Let me just read three. Uh, Let's see. Harnick writes... I bought your book about the unforgivable sin. I don't find any part talking about jokes that includes the Holy Spirit. I laughed at a joke like that, and I was terrified I committed the unforgivable sin. Do you think I committed it? Someone named, uh, well, they didn't want me to leave their name, so we'll call them anonymous, said, I sometimes have blasphemous thoughts, and in a counseling session told the pastor the blasphemous thought the demons were trying to put in my head. It was against the Holy Spirit and was not for me. So just telling the pastor what the thought was will not send me to hell, will it? And then Mike says, I fear that I've committed the unpardonable sin because I said something really horrible to the Holy Spirit in my mind, hoping that you can give me some shred of hope. It's killing me and I constantly doubt my salvation. These doubts have plagued me for years. These are the sorts of emails I get, uh, again, all the time about the unforgivable sin. People have read my book or read some of my articles on my website about the unforgivable sin, and they want to be freed from this fear. So let me just address briefly the concerns these three emails have said. So hernix was that he laughed at a joke about the Holy Spirit. Look, the Holy Spirit has a sense of humor, okay? God has a sense of humor. Jesus has a sense of humor. So it's okay to laugh about a joke about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit probably laughed with you. I don't know what the joke was. But even if it was maybe a little off color or whatever, um, that is not something to be concerned about. Uh, God has a sense of humor, and whether or not he laughed, he understands that sometimes we need to laugh, and humor is involved, and I don't think it is something that you need to be concerned with, whatever the joke was. Laugh. (laughs) life. We need to laugh more, especially now. Okay, the anonymous one about this person in a counseling session telling the pastor— about the blasphemous thoughts they had, and now they're concerned that simply by telling the pastor about the blasphemous thoughts, they commit the unforgivable sin. Again, um, no, the thought itself wasn't wasn't the unforgivable sin, and especially not telling the pastor in a counseling session about it. That is definitely not the unforgivable sin. So, you don't need to be worried about that. We sometimes have bad thoughts about God because of certain things going on in our life, or bad thoughts about the Holy Spirit because we think the Spirit has let us down, or we've been lied to, or sometimes we just lash out in anger. God understands all of this. And it is a good thing to tell another pastor, or Christian brother, or sister about it so they can help you, encourage you, and uh, remind you that God loves you and forgives you. So, um, if you have had these thoughts, then I encourage you to go talk to a pastor about them and tell them what has happened. And hopefully you have a wise and godly and gracious pastor who can give you uh, encouraging advice and scriptures to read and understand about the grace, love, and forgiveness of God. And then uh, Mike's about this, this thought about the Holy Spirit they've had. Again, thoughts cannot be thoughts about the Holy Spirit are not blasphemous. Uh, Jesus very clearly says in Matthew 12 and all there, elsewhere that whatever the Spirit is—and I think this is in the Mark passage—it's um, speaking words against the Holy Spirit, uh, whatever those words are. And again, we, we don't know what they are, but it's, it cannot be just thoughts. So if you have a negative thought about God or the Holy Spirit, don't worry about that. Those you know, They might be sinful, uh, but they, are, they, they also might be planted by a tempting spirit. But uh, So you have no responsibility there other than to deny it and reject it. But again, those thoughts are not the unforgivable sin. The bottom line, here's the bottom line. With all these emails I get about the unforgivable sin, the bottom line is this. Um, If you are afraid that you've committed the unforgivable sin, that in itself is evidence that you haven't. When you are afraid that you've committed the unforgivable sin, you want to know where that fear comes from. It comes from your conscience, and it comes from the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. Well, the, the, the unforgivable sin, by definition, according to the passages that talk about it, is basically when the Holy Spirit stops working on you. The Holy Spirit seeks to draw all people to Jesus and to convict them of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Well, if you have no conviction of sin, then you're not going to be afraid about whether or not you've committed the unforgivable sin. If you have no convictions of sin, then that means that the Holy Spirit has stopped convicting you of sin. And therefore, maybe you have committed the unforgivable sin. Therefore, the opposite is true. If you are afraid of a certain sin that you've committed, then guess what? The Holy Spirit is convicting you of it, and the Holy Spirit, therefore, is still with you and in you and upon you or near you and working with you to convict you of sin. And that's a good thing. You can thank God. You can thank Jesus. You can thank the Holy Spirit for that. Thank you for convicting me of this sin, Holy Spirit. Jesus, I confess it. Father, thank you for your forgiveness. These sorts of prayers, okay? So I would be most concerned about the person who says and thinks and does blasphemous things and has zero concern about it, okay? Um, By the way, if you're saying, well, I don't fear that I've committed the unforgivable sin, therefore, does that mean I've committed it? No. uh, We shouldn't fear this. I mean, when we come to fully understand the love and grace and forgiveness of God, which we see in and through Jesus, then Fear is cast out. John writes in 1 John 4, 18, that uh, there is no fear in love because perfect love casts out fear. Okay? So uh, if you don't have fear about the unforgivable sin, that's okay. (laughs) Um, But if you have committed a sin and you are wondering, fearful that it is the unforgivable sin, first recognize that that sign, that fear, is good and healthy. It's a sign that the Holy Spirit is at work in you. Therefore, you have not committed the unforgivable sin. At that point, thank God for the forgiveness you have in Jesus Christ and move on in his grace and love and forgiveness. Bottom line also is this. How can you know for sure that you cannot and will not forget the unforgivable sin? Uh, It's simple. Believe in Jesus for eternal life. Uh, Eternal life, once you've received it, can never, ever, ever be taken away from you. Not even God can take it away from you. there's lots of things God cannot do he cannot sin he cannot lie he is not will not cannot take away from you eternal life once he's given it to you or else that would make him a liar God cannot lie and he has said that basically when you believe in Jesus for eternal life you have eternal life and eternal life by definition is eternal it's everlasting and so God cannot lie he cannot take away your eternal life since he's promised once you have it it's yours forever. So believe in Jesus for eternal life. The only reason you have eternal life because Jesus gives it to you. John 3.16, John 5.24, John 6.47, over and over and over in the Gospel of John. Once you have eternal life, it's yours forever. You no longer have to fear that some sin will separate you from God, that you committed the unforgivable sin or said or thought something, said something blasphemous. All those fears disappear and vanish away because you are kept safe and secure in the arms of Jesus forever. Okay. So that's uh, on the unforgivable sin and some of the emails and comments I get on that. Okay. With that in mind, let's move on to our study of scripture. So we're going to look at the parable of the wheat and the tares today from Matthew chapter 13. And one of the reasons I am looking at this parable today is because it speaks, it uh, provides insight and help on both of the previous things we've talked about in today's podcast study, the politics, and then also this section on the unpardonable sin, the mailbag section. Okay, um... The the parable of the wheat and the tares helps us with a very specific issue or question that you and I face in many different areas of life. And the area is this. When you encounter something like in theology or politics or whatever area of life, health, finance, okay, and, and, and there's different perspectives, there's different viewpoints, there's different ideas on how to proceed, Your question, my question, our question should be is, which way is correct, okay? Which way is the best way? Which one is true? Uh, We all want to know the truth, right? I hope you want to know the truth. You want to know what is correct. You want to do what is correct. Nobody wants to be following a lie. Nobody wants to be deceived. And we all want to follow Jesus properly in our lives and do what is best for our families, even for our own health uh, and our own lives and our own jobs, Our own finances. We want to do what is best for our country. We want to do what is best for the world. But how can you know which way is best (laughs) when there's so many different perspectives, so many different uh, approaches, so many different competing voices telling you, here's the way, walk in it. (laughs) How can you know which one is the true way? I'm convinced that the parable of the wheat and the tares gives us an answer. For these sorts of issues, okay? And, and just so you know, uh, this study that I'm going to talk about in this podcast episode is sort of a summary of uh, various different sections in my Gospel Dictionary online course, uh, specifically the sections on hell um, and the sections on the kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God. Um, or maybe it's the section on probably hell, fire, and those three sections, hell, uh, fire, and the kingdom of God. And that's because this parable mentions the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, and there's also these tares that get cut down and thrown into the fire where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Okay, so I talk about those in the sections on hell and fire and kingdom of heaven. Anyway, enough about that. Let's just talk about it for this podcast episode. Let me summarize the parable for you if you are unfamiliar with it. In this parable, Jesus talks about a man who goes out to sow good seed in his field. And um, very similar to the parable of the four soils that we looked at last week. Uh, but he, he goes on to say that an enemy came and sowed bad seed in the field. And when the servants heard about this, they, they wanted, and the seeds started to sprout, they said, uh, Master, should we go out and pull up the bad seeds so that only good may grow? And the master says, No, because when you do that, you might pull up some of the good seed also. Let them come to harvest. And when they do, uh, we will be able to figure out which is which. And so they do. And then when the harvest comes, they go out, they gather up all of the bad seed, the tares, and they burn them in the fire. And then they bring in the good seed, the wheat, which has come to harvest, and that is gathered into the storehouse. Okay, and and that's the parable. So uh, what does this mean? Well, thankfully, this is another one of the parables that Jesus explains. Very rarely does Jesus explain parables, but he explained the parable of the four soils because it is so essential to understanding all the other parables. And Jesus also explains this parable here a little bit down uh, further in, in chapter chapter 13. Okay, now let's just talk briefly about what's going on in this parable. Many scholars and theologians believe that these tares, the bad seed, is most likely Darnell. I have a picture of it there in the website on my blog, uh, the the notes for this podcast episode. And basically, Darnell looks pretty much exactly like wheat for most of its life. Uh, Both of them grow up. They look uh, very similar for a long time. The Darnell has heads of grain on top, just like the wheat does and so on. And it's pretty much impossible to tell the difference between the two until the harvest. Right around uh, harvest time, what happens is the grain, the wheat, stops growing and it starts to turn a golden color. We've all seen wheat fields, grain fields, where it's like this. The Darnell, however keeps growing, it grows taller and taller, taller and taller, uh, and, and it stands upright. The, the heads of grain and wheat sort of bow over as they dry out and bend towards the ground, whereas the Darnell just keeps going straight up tall. And uh, it will stand up a foot and a half or so, uh, about above the wheat, making it very, very obvious which is the wheat and which is the Darnell. Prior to harvest though, it's pretty much impossible to tell because the wheat is green, just like the Darnell, and they are basically the same height and size and they look pretty much identical. So then what happens is when the harvest comes, it's very simple for the, the, the harvesters to go through and before they gather up any of the wheat, they just go along and lop off, cut off, gather up all the tops of everything that's higher and greener than the wheat because that's the Darnell. Then they can gather it up and uh, burn it. You don't want it to ever get mixed up with the wheat. It can cause sickness and death if people eat it. Uh, if animals eat it, it can make them dizzy and so on. Okay. So um, that, that's, that's what this parable is about. And people who are in uh, agricultural societies like they were in Jesus uh, would understand that. Now, when Jesus begins to explain this in verses, you know, 37 to 40 and so on, he begins by identifying the various characters in the story. He says, the sower is the son of man. Okay, who's the Son of Man? Well, that's Jesus. The Son of Man is one of Jesus' favorite titles for himself. Uh, The field then, Jesus says, is the world, okay? Uh, And the good seeds, which go out into the world, are the sons of the kingdom. That's 1338. What are the tares then? The tares are the opposite of the sons of the kingdom. They are the sons of the wicked one. And he says the enemy is the devil, the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Okay, so Jesus goes through and basically identifies every, well, almost every character in the parable. Um, But there's one character or set of characters in the parable that Jesus does not identify. And I believe that that missing identification is the key to understanding the parable. All right, so who is it that Jesus does not ident- identify? Well, if you were sort of paying attention and mentally checking them off in your mind, Jesus does not identify the servants in the parable. Remember the servants? They're the ones who came to the master and said, uh, Master, <laughs> you got weeds growing out in your field out there. An enemy has come and sown them. Uh, should we go around and, uh, and pick them, pull them up so that only the weed grows? When Jesus comes around to explaining the parable, he doesn't say who the servants are. And I've read lots of commentaries and lots of studies. There's not a whole lot of agreement on this. I have heard some people say the servants are the reapers. um, But I disagree with that because when the owner is speaking to the servants, he clearly identifies the reapers as a different group. No, he says, wait until the reapers are going to come, then they will separate it. Well, if the servants are the reapers, then he would say, no, wait until you are going to collect, when you are going to reap the fields, then you, it's a different group, and so on. Um, so So who are the servants? Who are the servants? I believe the servants are the disciples, the followers of Jesus. If Jesus is the Son of Man, and... Uh, the servants come to the Son of Man, to the Master, and say, uh, gee, you know, what should we do here? Then whoever is coming to Jesus and asking questions about what they should do, those are the servants. And who's doing that? That's, it's the disciples, the followers of Jesus. That's who the servants are in this story. So Jesus is saying that the people might say, yeah, but the, then who are the sons of the kingdom? Aren't, aren't they Christians? Aren't they the followers of Jesus? Aren't they the disciples? Um and, and, you know, they're the ones that are the, the good seed. So, uh, no, the, the sons of the kingdom here are not the disciples, and that's because the sons of the wickedness are, are not people either. Again, uh, the word son here in Greek, it's uh, usually understood as a child of someone else, but the word son can be understood metaphorically, Uh, sort of as a word like offspring or something like that. And it can be therefore used in connection to an idea or uh, a series of events or something like that, Uh, the the inner characteristics or attributes of something or someone, okay? So, uh, for example, uh, sons of this world are contrasted with sons of light in Luke 16, 8, and, and so on. But uh, we have sons of this age and sons of disobedience and sons of the devil. These are terms used all over the place in scripture. And they're usually not referring to a specific person, but to the teachings or ideas or results or consequences of living according to the ways of God versus living according to the ways of this world. Okay? So the sons of the kingdom and the sons of the wickedness, they're not referring to people. They're referring to ideas consequences. And we know this because of the immediate context. Um, this goes back to the section in Matthew chapter 12, which speaks to the unpardonable, unforgivable sin. And there, uh, Jesus is speaking of the kingdoms of the sons of the Pharisees in Matthew 12, 27, which is not referring to their physical sons or even their disciples, but to their teachings, the things that come from Pharisaical teachings. That's what Jesus is referring to there. He uh he, he speaks of lots of terminology in Matthew chapter 12 that is repeated in Matthew chapter 13. Scattering and, and gathering, the, the you know, the age to come, fruitfulness of various trees. Anyway, I'm getting a little off track here. But the terms that Jesus used in Matthew chapter 12 in in speaking of the Pharisees and their teachings, all of those terms are repeated again in Matthew chapter 13 with these parables. And so the sons of the kingdom are basically the kingdom teachings and the results of living according to the kingdom, whereas the sons of wickedness are worldly teachings and living the ways according to the ways of this world and even the ways of corrupt religion. Okay, so that's how to understand the sons of the kingdom and the sons of wickedness here in this parable. And the question then of the of the servants in the store is. How can we tell which is which? How can we tell the good seed from the bad seed? How can we tell good teachings, the teachings of the kingdom, from the teachings of this world? Both make similar promises. You follow in this way, there's going to be peace and love and prosperity and happiness for all. We are making promises. You vote for us, you do this, you buy that, you go there, and I promise you things are going to be great for you. And you've got two or more groups making these promises. Offering you fruit in your life. Do this and you will have a great fruitfulness uh, in your life. There'll be wonderful prosperity in your life. You'll see a great harvest in your life, in our country, in your state, in your city, in your family, if you do this. And we have, 2 let's just say, two groups of people making those promises. How can you tell the difference? How can you know which one is the right way to go? The parable of the wheat and the tares is the answer. In this parable, Jesus, as the Son of Man, tells his servants, the disciples, look, two types of seeds have been sown, and don't try to go figure it out before the harvest. Because if you do, you are going to make incorrect judgments. Instead, wait until the harvest. Wait until, Jesus says, the end of the age in Matthew 13, 40. Okay. Now that's not helpful if we have to wait till the second return of Jesus, right? Cuz w- what? We we just sort of wait and make no decisions about anything in life <laughs> until we die and you know rot in the ground and Jesus returns sometime. Wasn't helpful for them 2000 years ago, not really helpful for us. We sort of need to know the results now, the answers now in in a sense, or at least sometime during our life as we watch and observe and study and learn. So no, uh, this phrase the age is Jesus is referring to the age that he and his disciples were living in. Uh, Bible scholars talk about various biblical ages, and pretty much everyone agrees that the church age, the church began at the beginning of the church age, and uh, the previous age ended, previous era, we could call it, ended with the death and resurrection of Jesus. So when Jesus says the end of this age, he's referring basically to the end of his life. To the things that are going to come about in that period, uh, of a couple decades surrounding his life and ministry. It doesn't happen overnight, uh, but it's a process that occurs. And there's birth pangs, all these imageries that Jesus talked about in his ministry. Um, as the old age died and the new age begins. That's Matthew 24 and 25. Go read those. Okay, so the resurrection of Jesus signified the end of one age. Didn't happen right then, but that's. The main symbol that shows one age is ending and the birth of the church was a sign that a new age had begun. There was still death throes of the old age and so on. Okay, all that is what Jesus is talking about here when he's saying the end of the age. So he's saying basically wait and watch. The disciples in the days of Jesus basically had a choice. They could follow the ways of Jesus or they could follow the ways of Rome and the religious leaders of that day. The political and religious leaders. Both were promising similar results, and Jesus said, no, don't try to figure that out now. I know that I'm just, you know, a person, a teacher. This is what many people viewed him as at that time. They didn't realize that he necessarily was God incarnate, that he was going to die and rise again. So he said, look, I know that I am teaching a different way of living, and the Pharisees, Sadducees, religious leaders have partnered with the politics of their time in many ways, and they are saying things. How can you know which one is correct? How can you know which is the good seed, which is the bad seed? Don't try and figure it out right now. Wait until the end of the age, a couple years from now, and then you will know the truth. And the one that is false will get burned in the fire. This is not a reference to hell. This is basically saying it will be destroyed. The one that is wrong will be destroyed, will come to an end naturally. And um, in Israelite history, Jewish history, we know this is exactly what happened with the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. The Israelites, the Jewish people rebelled, and the Roman Empire came in and said, no more rebellion, and they basically killed uh, lots and lots of Jewish people. They, They destroyed Jerusalem, and they tore down the temple. Now, the religious leaders of that time were dependent upon the temple and Jerusalem for their teachings and for their way of life and for all their promises. And when so when Jerusalem and the temple was destroyed, basically, it was shown that their promises, that their way of living was not the correct way, did not lead lead to fruitfulness. Their promises came to nothing and were destroyed and even, in fact, led to the death of many, many people and the destruction of their lives. So the sons of wickedness, the teachings, the results, the fruit of wickedness was destroyed there in AD 70. Okay. That's what Jesus is telling his disciples. I know that he, here's what he's saying. I know that it's difficult for you to decide which of us is true, which of us is wrong. Between Jesus saying, between me and the Pharisees and Sadducees, the religious leaders. We both want similar things, but we're going about it in completely different ways. Which way is right? Which way should you walk in? Just wait, because right now they look identical. Right now you cannot tell the difference. And if you try to make the judgment right now, you're going to make some bad judgments. So just wait and watch and learn, see what the consequences are, see which one burns up. And when you do that, it will be obvious when the harvest comes. That's what the teaching, that's what the parable was for the disciples. Now, It's still in the Bible, therefore it still applies to us, and the principle still applies to us today. It's sometimes very difficult, isn't it, to tell the difference between good teaching and bad teaching, good ideas and bad ideas, good politics and bad politics. I get it. Very difficult sometimes. So how can you tell? Well, the advice from Jesus in the parable of the wheat and the tares is that we withhold judgment until the harvest comes. That is, until the two different results— become obvious and we don't have to wait necessarily to the end of the age, but just until we start seeing the logical outcomes or the logical results of the various approaches, the various teachings, the various positions, the various ideas. When a teaching results in good things for people um, that are good for everybody involved, then we know that that is the way of God. When a way, when a teaching, an idea, a position, a platform, results in bad things for everybody, then we know that that way is part of the sons of wickedness. It is not helpful, not healthy, for everybody involved. And uh, this is especially, you know, in regard to the fruits of the spirit. When when things result and lead to the fruits of the spirit—love and joy and peace, right? Uh, patience, then. Uh, we know that those are of the Spirit. Those are part of the kingdom of God. When things lead to and result in uh, the works of the flesh that Paul describes in Galatians 5, 19-21, then we know those things are not of God and can safely be rejected. And By the way, I want to be very clear here. None of this has anything to do with a person's eternal life. Okay, We cannot and we should not and we must not look to a person's works or whatever's in their life, to determine whether or not they have eternal life. Okay, we cannot look at a person's heart in that way. It's impossible for us. And so this is why God says, just leave all that judgment up to me. Well, fine. We'll give that over to you. But we can look, and we are expected to look at a person's life and how they live and the results that come from their life uh, to, to determine whether or not they should be listened to as far as how to live life. You want instructions on how to be healthy. Don't look at somebody who's overweight and obese uh, and, 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 you know, drinks a lot or smokes a lot or does drugs. They don't have good advice, and, and the fruit of their advice is not showing up in their own life. Therefore, you should not listen to them. Look to somebody who is healthy and fit uh, and follow their advice, okay? Uh, and as long as they're not doing drugs to keep themselves healthy and fit, that's a whole nother subject. Okay, same with politics. You looked at the fruit of a person's uh, politics and what comes from it, um, what they actually do and what is actually occurring by the numbers, by the facts, by the statistics, not by what they promise or what they claim or even what they claim about their enemies. Just you have to look at the actual results to see which way is correct, which way is fruitful, which way is godly. Which way is good and right and kind and loving and just for all people? Not just for a certain group of people in power or the rich or whatever, but for all people involved. And I think when we do that, the choices become obvious. Okay? This is not just true in theology, but also in politics and health and finances and all sorts of other areas of life as well. It's a very uh, practical truth here from the parable of the wheat and the tares. Okay, so that's all I have from this parable today. Uh, Again, you can leave a comment about this, question or comment at the the blog post that goes along with this podcast episode. That's over at redeeminggod.com. Just search for the parable of the wheat and the tares. Uh, If you have a a comment or question that you would like me to maybe answer on the podcast, you can do that at the contact form on my website at redeeminggod.com down near the bottom. Um, Just look at the place that says, click here to contact me. Click that and fill out the form and you're off. And um, and also consider joining my online discipleship group. If this sort of teaching, you like it and you are encouraged and instructed and edified by it, then I have more of this kinds of teaching, hundreds of hours of teaching uh, there by audio and that you can download, even some videos. Just go to my website, redeeminggood.com, and, and uh, click the Join My Discipleship link there at the top. And there's a fee for that, but that also helps me run this podcast, run the website, and get my books out there and published. So, okay, thank you so much for listening. I appreciate it very much. And uh, we'll see you next week when we take up another passage and do our best to describe it and understand it in light of Jesus Christ and him crucified. See you then.